And for the rest of us, welcome to our three-week series about marriage. Uh, woo! <laughs> I paid Corlin to do that. <laughs> um, so why don't you grab a Bible? We're going we're gonna to be in a, a couple different passages, um, but if you want to have a, you know, a finger in 1 Corinthians 7 and then also have Genesis 2 kind of ready to go, um, we'll be in a few spots. But we're calling this marriage series For Better or For Worse. And you might be asking, well, why now? Why uh, a marriage series now? We're, we've been going through the Gospel of John. We just had Good Friday and Easter. Like, why, why a series on marriage? Um, in different seasons in the church, uh, pastors and people on staff and elders in the church, we notice sometimes that there are seasons where it seems like many people's marriages are struggling to varying degrees, right? Some are just kind of, we've hit a, a, a speed bump and some are kind of like we're in the ICU, we're in critical care, but we've noticed that there's seasons like that in the church. And so really the rule of thumb is if, if there's 10 marriages we know about that, that are in trouble, there's probably many more that we just don't know about. And so we're in one of those seasons, we're in a season where we're noticing that there's, there's quite a number of people who have just been honest with us saying, man, my marriage is struggling. And, and so we said, you know, well, as a church then, you know, sometimes you get, I, I, I don't hear God's audible voice, but you just go, okay, God, are you telling us something? Is there something that we should be focusing on as a church? Now, most often we just preach through books of the Bible. Uh, and so we were in the Gospel of John, but every once in a while, it's good to just kind of press pause and say, we need to address topically things that are, are, are going on in the church. Now, most of you, if you're married, you said some kind of vows to each other. And, you know, the classic vows, right, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, for better or for worse, till death do us part. Probably all of us, if you're married here, you said some kind of iteration of that. Maybe you actually said those exact words. And lots of times when life is, you know, the positive parts of that phrase, when life is richer, healthy, and better, we just go, smooth sailing, this is great, but what do you do, right, when your marriage goes through the negative connotations of, those, of that dichotomy? What if you're going through a season of poorness, sickness, and worseness? If that's a word, I don't think so. And so that's what we want to address. What do you do in a marriage when you go through the worse seasons? Like, how do you actually get through that? What, what are biblical principles to kind of get through those seasons? So the roadmap for the next three weeks... Um, Today, we want to spend some time discussing our culture's view of marriage versus the biblical view because that, I think that actually plays into how we handle uh, difficult seasons. And then the next two weeks after this week, we want to just talk through biblical principles for getting through conflict and hard seasons in your marriage. Now, before we kind of dive into our culture's view of love and marriage, there's something that I, I want to address that's kind of bothered me a little bit about church culture, right? So I've, I've grown up in the church. Um, man, something's going on with this thing. Uh, I've grown up in the church, and my dad's a pastor, and now I'm a pastor. And so through, you know, 30-plus years of being around church culture, there's always something that's bothered me related to this, marriage, uh, this, this topic of marriage. We sometimes, I think, as Christians, idolize marriage as the only ideal that God could possibly have for people. And then we treat single people as though there's something wrong with them. Now, we would never say that. We would never go up to someone and be like, oh, you're not married. Well, there's something wrong with you. We would never flat out say that, but we, we, we treat people like that, right? We give lip service. Yes, singleness can be a gift, but by the way, have you met Brad? He's single too, right? We do stuff like that. We're like, I know, you know, you know and we say things like, oh, well, don't worry, right? The right one will come along. Don't worry. I've heard this. Once you stop worrying about it, that's when God will bring so. It's because you're too focused on it, or, or, right? So we, we give like lip service to, yeah, singleness can be a gift, but the way we talk to people, we actually don't believe that. We go, ah, singleness is actually a curse. 
And so it actually, it, it, it bothers me that we, if we're not care, careful, make an idol out of marriage. I actually heard on, on a, a YouTube clip, a Christian pastor from the, the, the States, he said this, the Christian ideal, God's ideal, is that you get married and have tons of kids. And I went, well, that's a great statement. What if people can't have kids? What if people are actually called by God to be single? They're not living up to God's ideal? Really? Because Paul, in 1 Corinthians 7, he actually states that both being married and being single is a gift. They're both gifts from God. 1 Corinthians 7, 7, Paul says, I wish that all were as I myself am. He's talking about being single. I wish, Paul says, I wish you guys were all single like I am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Even in verse 17 in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, Let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. So notice that Paul doesn't say, like, lead the single life for a season and then God will actually give you fulfillment. He, no, no, no. He says, each is a gift, whether you're single or married. And then he actually goes on to talk about the incredible blessings of both being single and being married. And then he actually tries to give us a bit of a kingdom perspective on marriage and singleness. So if you look at 1 Corinthians 7.25, he says this, Now concerning the betrothed, now we don't use um, language like that, and it could mean, like the word can be translated virgins, so he could just be speaking to single people. Now con concerning virgins... Or betrothed would be something like being super engaged, if you want to use that term. It wasn't like our engagement, right? It was, it was much more serious. So Paul's either speaking to virgins, so single people, or those people who are just engaged. They're not married yet. And he says this, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you haven't sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she hasn't sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you from that. And all the married people are like, amen. Um, verse 29, this is what I mean, brothers. Listen to what he says. This is, why is Paul talking like this? He says this, the appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. We're going to explain that. Those who mourn as though they were not mourning. Those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. Those who buy as though they had no goods. Those who deal with the world as though they had no deal, dealings with it. Here's why. For the present form of this world is passing away. So Paul says to single people and to married people, just live to whatever God has called you to. Why? Because this present world is passing away. What he means is Jesus is going to come back very soon. So that's what he means when he says, um, for those who have wives, live as though they had none. That doesn't mean like Saturday night, you're like, Paul says, I can live like I don't have a wife. See you later. I'm going out with the boys. That's not what Paul means. What Paul means is, yes, you honor your wife. And if you are married, then that's great. But he says, don't put all of your joy coming from your spouse. He says, your spouse isn't the be all and end all. Jesus is coming back. So live like that. Yes, love your wife, have joy in your marriage, but it should point to the future, right? Invest in your marriage, but only with a view of serving Christ more. That's why he says, for those who mourn, live as though you're not mourning. So what he means by that is, as Christians, yes, we face tragedy and pain and suffering, and we mourn, but he says, we don't mourn as if there's nothing better coming. Mourn as if you're not mourning. Jesus is coming back. He says, rejoice as those who uh, don't rejoice. So anytime we have rejoicing in the world, we should remind ourselves, this is so small compared to what's coming. Right? Jesus is coming back. Those who buy as, they, they had, as if they had no goods. We don't place all of our emphasis on materialism and money and things. He's like, Jesus is coming back. Those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. So Paul's whole point, right? And this is not even part of the sermon. This is just my thing that bothers me. But Paul's whole point is we have to stop idolizing either singleness or marriage. He says both are incredible gifts from God. If you're single, you can serve the kingdom of God in ways that married people cannot. 
And if you're married, you can serve the kingdom of God in ways that single people cannot. Both are a gift from God. So as we start three weeks in marriage, I know that we have single people with us. And so I just want to say, single people, you are not broken. You are not broken. You are not lesser in the kingdom. Because if that was true, then Jesus was lesser. Because he was single his whole life. So you're not broken. You are useful for the kingdom of God. And so as a church, I think one of the things we can actually do is, yes, hold marriage up and honor it, but also for our single brothers and sisters to, to hold them up and honor what God has called them to and say, bless you, how can you serve the kingdom in your singleness? So all that being said, I, I want to make sure that we do that through these next three weeks, specifically addressing marriage, but we're not saying, well, if you're single, then this, this nothing is for you and, you know, you're lesser in the kingdom. No, of course not. So that being said, what is our culture's view of marriage versus the biblical view? Is it really that different? Right? If you think about our culture's view of love and marriage versus what the Bible says, are they really that different? And I'll submit to you, they are massively different. And I think actually one of the reasons that our marriages get into trouble is that we actually believe the culture's view of marriage rather than the biblical view and then when problems happen, we just spiral out of control because we view what our culture says about marriage has to be correct, and, and then our marriages fall apart and crumble. So how many of you like romantic comedies? Be honest, this is church, you can't lie. Okay, so if you've seen one romantic comedy, you've seen them all. Um, because they're essentially the same premise every single movie. But here's how our culture views, you know, romance and marriage and love. There's a, a romantic comedy from probably 20 years ago called Serendipity. And Serendipity is like, I'm going to just give a brief summary. You know, it's this chance meeting between this man and a woman. And, and then she's kind of superstitious. So she says, well, here's what we're going to do. If we're meant to be together, we're going to do a little test. I'm going to write my name and phone number on this $5 bill and buy a coffee. And if we're meant to be together, the universe whatever, <laughs> will bring that $5 back to you. And then he signs, right, his uh, name and phone number in, in a, a book and then kind of puts it back. And if we're meant to be together, somehow you'll find the book. And then the movie goes on and they kind of split ways. And then you fast forward, I don't remember, 10 years or whatever it is. And the guy's getting married to a different woman. And it's like the night of his wedding, his friend gives him the book, right, as a wedding gift. And he goes, oh. <gasps> Oh my goodness, it's her number. And then at that same time, she's buying something and she finds a $5 bill. This is unbelievable. And the whole thing is like, you weren't marrying the right person. You're soulmate and you found each other and it ends and they're at a skating rink and it's like, oh, we're so in love. This is amazing. The universe brought us together. That's, that by and large is our culture's view of like love and romance and how people are brought together, right? You complete me. Right? I found my soulmate, the other half of me. And it's this idea that your mate, your spouse, your love is actually meant to fulfill you and complete you. So we have this, um, one writer called it apocalyptic romance. We have this view that, you know, you're at an event and your eyes lock and it was love at first sight and all the butterflies and then, you know, the universe brought you together. Our culture believes in this kind of apocalyptic romance and yet when you look at statistics and attitudes and view around marriage and divorce, it's abysmal. So don't forget that. Our culture celebrates this version of love and marriage and yet statistically speaking, it's a nightmare. So divorce rates... Uh, in Canada are roughly around the 40 to 45 percent mark. And actually, the divorce, rate, the divorce rate is dropping in Canada. The number of divorces in 2020 was the lowest since 1973. But it's very misleading because do you know why the number of divorces is the lowest it's been since 1973? Is because less and less and less and less people are even bothering to get married. So it's very misleading. To say like, look, there's the lowest divorce rates ever. And it's like, well, yeah, because hardly anyone is getting married anymore. Let's just live together. What is the point of a piece of paper? 
Um, the average age for divorce is 46 years old. And actually, st statistically, 31%, so a third of divorces are joint application. Two people saying, yeah, we're just done. So a third of divorces are not even for like, you know, an affair or something, you know, abuse or something terrible. A third of divorces are two people going, we fell out of love. We don't love each other anymore. And it's very, you know, it's just whatever. We're just done. The average marriage length in Canada is 12 to 14 years. So, right, our culture says we know what love and romance is. We know the apocalyptic butterflies. We know what love is, and yet we're proving that we actually don't. Culture, our culture has this unrealistic idealism about marriage, and it can't deliver on it. And so then we have uh, divorce and unhappiness and really twisted views about relationships. One online forum talking about relationships and divorce, um, this woman uh, wrote this comment. She said, out of 10 married couples, this is people that she knows, out of 10 married couples, seven are miserable as hell. She says, seven of my friends out of 10, just miserable. She says this, I'm getting married next year because I love my fiance. However, if things change, I won't hesitate to divorce him. And I wanted to find this, this man and be like, run for your life. But that was her view. She says, 70% of my married friends are miserable, and I'm getting married, but if, if, if things change, I'm not even going to hesitate to divorce him. They're not even married yet. They're engaged. Uh, Tara Parker Pope, she's a, a writer for the New York Times, she said this, the notion that the best marriages are those that bring satisfaction to the individual may seem counterintuitive. After all, isn't marriage supposed to be about putting the relationship first? Not anymore. For centuries, marriage was viewed as an economic and social institution. And the emotional and intellectual needs of the spouse were secondary to the survival of the marriage itself. But in modern relationships, people are looking for a partnership. And they want partners who make their lives more interesting. Who, who help each of them uh, attain valued goals. So Tara Parker Pope says, yeah, in the past... The idea of like, you know, putting the marriage first and we're going to work on the marriage together. She's like, yeah, that does, that, that's not a thing anymore. Now marriage is what do I get out of it? How is this other person fulfilling my needs? So this kind of thinking um, came in with uh, the 18th and 19th century enlightenment where the meaning of life became the freedom of the individual to choose the life that most fulfills them. And life was about, it became about emotional and sexual fulfillment and your self-actualization, right? So in the 18th and 19th century, with the Enlightenment, it was like, well, it's about you just becoming the best you that you can be. And all of your relationships are meant to help you self-actualize. One lawyer described marriage as this, it's a terminal sexual contract designed for the gratification of the individual parties. That's all it is now. It's just a contract between two people to just kind of help fulfill one another. And so what you have, it's so fascinating, you have this kind of apocalyptic, romantic view of love, and yet you actually have all of this pessimism about marriage, and it comes from this unrealistic idealism about marriage. There's been a shift in what, what is the purpose of marriage? And then you begin to have really twisted iterations of this where you have couples who are married saying, yeah, it's fine if my husband has a girlfriend on the side. I just want him, what? To be happy. So you have open relationships. You have thruples where you have three people saying, it's not just man and wife. Now it's man and wife and wife. We're a thruple together. And so you have all of these twisted ideas because we're saying we're not fulfilled. Person over here is not helping me self-actualize. There has to be more. So you actually have quite a bit of pessimism surrounding marriage. That's our culture. What is the biblical view of marriage then? So if you have a Bible, Genesis 2, we have to we have to kind of start right at the beginning. What is the biblical view? Is the biblical view of marriage that bleak? Is it really that my spouse is supposed to fulfill my needs and if I'm not happy, then you just kind of move on? So all throughout the Bible, marriage is presented as a covenant. And we don't use that uh, words like that much anymore. But marriage in the Bible is presented as this Mutual fulfillment through 
mutual sacrifice. Marriage is seen and presented through Scripture as a sacrificial commitment to the good of the other. So the idea of love and marriage in our culture, like we've been saying, is that my needs and my feelings of love need to be met. But actually, love in the Bible is presented not how much you want to receive, but how much you're willing to give of yourself. Love in the Bible asks questions like, how, how much am I willing to lose for that person? How much freedom am I willing to forsake for that person? How much time, emotions, and resources am I willing to invest for that person? Love in the Bible is almost opposite from our culture. Our culture says, how are your needs being fulfilled? And love in the Bible says, how much are you willing to sacrifice for the person that you love? Now, covenants are all over the Bible. And I would describe covenant, if I could use like a really simple explanation, a covenant is like a promise, but way more intense. And it's seen throughout the Bible as a covenant is seen as something that you are unable to break. So an example in Genesis 15, and I, I know I said Genesis, Genesis 2, but we'll get there. But in Genesis 15, God makes this covenant with Abraham. If you remember, he's like, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a huge nation. I'm going to give you all this land. And if you read the account, the account in Genesis 15, Abraham is instructed by God, I want you to take a whole bunch of animals. I want you to cut them in half and place them on either side. And then if you read the account, it's amazing. God verbally makes this covenant with Abraham, and then God himself walks between the pieces of the animals. And you go, well, that's weird. And that was common. That was a common um, covenant ceremony. And what it was meant to do was basically the person who walked through the, the, the cut-in-half animal pieces, as they promised something, what they were saying is, let me be cut in half like these animals if I break my promise. Let my blood be spilled like these dead animals if I go back on what I'm promising. I've actually told quite a few um, couples that we should start doing this in marriages. Maybe people would remember it and take it more seriously. <laughs> Here comes the bride between the animals. Um, but that, this was like super common. This was a common covenantal ceremony, and it carried weight to it because people were saying, like, I'm so serious about this promise that I'm making to you, I, I'm willing to put my life on the line. And so then you see covenants all throughout the Bible between people, right? First Samuel 18, David and Jonathan make a covenant uh, one to the other, or you see covenants between different nations, but more often you see covenants existing between God and people, like, if you remember when God saved the Israelites from Egypt and he brought them through the Reed Sea uh, and, and, and then he brings them out into the wilderness and they're at Mount Sinai and then God does what? He enters into a covenant with Israel. He basically says, like, if you do this and this and this, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. And all the people stood there and they said, yes, we agree to this covenant. Now, the marriage covenant is unique because it is both a covenant between two people, but it's a covenant between two people and God. It's the only kind of covenant that exists like that, where it's, I, I am making a covenant with my wife, right, this horizontal covenant, man to wife, and yet both parties are making a vertical covenant with God. Um, Malachi 2.14 says this, it'll be on the screen, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you've been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife, by covenant. So marriage is a covenant. So to understand the marriage covenant, like I said, we got to actually go back to Genesis chapter 2 to see this first marriage that took place between the first two human beings. And if you know the story, Adam is created first, and then all the animals are kind of brought to him. And the story goes that there's not a helper fit for him. There's not uh, someone that is a good fit. And so God then creates woman, and then he brings the woman to the man. And then you see this kind of first marriage ceremony. And the man goes into some poetry. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. It's amazing. And then Genesis 2, 24, the, the whole account ends like this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, 
And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So you have this, this picture of a man leaving his mom and dad and holding fast to his wife. Now, the word hold fast, and maybe in your translation it says cling to or cleave. A man shall cleave to his wife. It's the Hebrew word dabach. And literally, it means that you are clinging or keeping someone close. It's the, it's the idea of two things actually being glued together. That they become one. Like you take two sheets of paper and you cover it in glue and you, you, you take two things and you glue them together. That's the word debak. And what it implies, what that word implies is someone who's going to practice covenant faithfulness. So here's some other, sometimes it's helpful when you find a Hebrew word like hold fast, like debak to ask where else in the Bible is it used? How does that kind of open up our understanding of it. So Deuteronomy 10, 20, God says this, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him, and debak, hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. So God says, like, you should serve God, and you should hold fast, you should be glued to him. Joshua 22, 5, it says, only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, and to cling to, debak, to cling to him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Job 19.20, Job says, my bones stick to my skin, my bones debak to my skin and to my flesh. So if you think about like someone who is malnourished and their, their, their skin is literally like sticking to their bones, that's that word. Now, the, the, the greatest example of this word is in Job 41. God is actually explaining this creature that he's made that he calls Leviathan. And in the description, this is what God says. His back is made of rows of shields shut up closely with a seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined, debak, one to another, they clasp each other and cannot be separated. Isn't that amazing? When you think about, I am going to hold fast to my spouse, it's like you're so close that no air can even like get between you, that you cannot be pulled apart. So the biblical view of marriage is this, a covenant where literally the text says that a, a man and a woman become so close that it's like they become one flesh. Two become one until death. That's why, I don't know if you've ever uh, known someone who in kind of their older years, maybe they've been married 30, 40 years, and they lose their spouse, right? Their spouse passes away. If you talk to them, it's, it's almost like they've lost a piece of themselves, right? It's because two became one. It's like taking a piece of paper, two pieces of paper that have been glued together, and when that spouse dies, it's like trying to rip those pieces of paper apart. So no, no wonder they feel like they lost a piece of themselves. A covenant is viewed as an unbreakable promise. I'm going to give myself sacrificially for the good of the other person. So different from our culture, our culture would say marriage is a contract not a covenant, it's a contract based on, is this person going to meet my needs? Is my spouse going to fulfill all my wants? Is my spouse going to make me happy? And if not, well, then we can just break the contract. I remember the first time that I went to get a cell phone. Um, I was actually 18 when I got my first cell phone. So all these kids walking around who are like four years old with a cell phone, I'm like, give me a break. I was 18, and I remember I went to the store. I think it was Telus or Bell, or that's not important. But I went to the store, and if you remember, they, they give you, and they, they still, it's all online now, but they give you, here's your contract. And it, sometimes it's like a stack of papers, and of course, none of us read it. Um, <laughs> but you flip through, and there's all of these things. And I remember being 18-year-old, I'm out of my parents' house for the first time. I'm buying a cell phone on my own for the first time. And I remember being quite intimidated, being like, 
Am I sure I want to do this? This is like a 30-page contract to get a cell phone. Okay, sign here. And I remember being like, oh. And then it wasn't too long after that. I had to go and actually get out of it. And I realized, wow, it's super easy to get out of a cell phone contract. You just pay. And then they're like, okay, done. Right? That's what a contract is. And so our culture views marriage as a contract where we go, yeah, you know what? You can get out of it. It's fine. So marriage in the Bible is this idea of I'm going to sacrificially serve my covenant partner, right? Even in Ephesians 5, wives are said, you know, are you going to respect your husbands? Are you going to serve them? Husbands are then challenged. Are you actually going to love your wife like Jesus loved the church? How did Jesus love the church? He died for her. Jesus gave up his rights and sacrificially served his bride. Husbands, are you going to do that? And our culture would say, well, no, 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 no. Don't serve. Be served. Are your needs being met? Are the feelings of love there? Are you actually compatible with your spouse? Is the person that you're with actually your soulmate? Remember, serendipity, he's getting married. And well, what if there's someone out there that's actually your soulmate? And it's not the person you married, Right? What if the feelings go away for a season? And so the covenant of marriage biblically is I'm, gonna, I'm committing myself to this person to love them sacrificially, to actually lay my life down, to serve them, to fight for them, to work at it. And some might kind of respond back and go, well, love shouldn't be something that's so hard, Right? Isn't love and the feelings of love and the butterflies and the tingles when they touch your arm, shouldn't that just all happen? Don't, aren't we taking out the, the romance if love is actually something that you have to work at and commit to and work hard through in seasons where maybe the feelings aren't there? And people go, well, that doesn't make any sense. Love is just supposed to happen. And I would respond, well, why? Why is that? Anything else in life, we say, no, I'm going to actually commit to that and work on it so that it gets better, right? No one wakes up going, well, I'm going to try and hit a fastball, and the first one, they swing and miss, and they go, well, why isn't it easier? He's got to work at it. I, I remember when I started skateboarding, and uh, I walked to Walmart, and I bought a Walmart skateboard, and then I came home, and then I really wanted to learn a kickflip, right, where it's basically the board's like, doot, doot, and it spins around, and I wanted to learn that. Now, I tried it a few times, and I very easily could have said, why doesn't this come more naturally to me? I give up. But no. I said, no, it takes actual work and practice and dedication and commitment to learn this. Why don't we have that view with our marriage? I mean, it's too much work. I don't have the, the commitment or the dedication. Why doesn't it just come naturally? So if you and I view marriage as an unbreakable covenant, if we go into our marriage going, I'm joined with someone who literally, I'm going to become one flesh with them. We are so close. We are glued together. We are unable to be torn apart. It actually changes how you go through the worst times, how you go through disappointment, how you go through hardship because you say, I'm not going to throw the towel in because for a season of life, the butterfly, apocalyptic, romantic feelings aren't there. I mean, you don't give up because it's hard. And if you go into your marriage saying, I, 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 if you go in saying, I want my needs to be fulfilled and met, and he or she better make me happy, well, of course you're going to be disappointed. But if you go into a marriage saying, how can I serve and lay down my life for the good of my spouse? It, it will change your perception of how you handle conflict and worse times and disappointments. Actually, statistically speaking, um, they've done studies, two-thirds of unhappy marriages get through it within five years if you remember the covenant you made. 66% of marriages can survive hard times if you simply say, I'm going to remind myself of the covenant that I made with this person.
Um, there's a, 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 a classic book called The Odyssey, uh, and it's a, it, one of the main characters is Ulysses, and if you remember, he, you know, he's traveling around on his ship, and they're, they're traveling to the island of the Sirens, and if you remember, the sirens are those creatures that like, whoa, draw them, just like that, <laughs> draw them in, right? Draw the unknowing sailors in with their beautiful voices, and then it's like a catastrophe, right? The ship will crash on the, the rocks. And so Ulysses knows that they're going by the island of the sirens, and he knows that the, he's going to go insane, because everyone does. When you hear the call of the sirens, everyone goes mad. And so what does he do? He knows that the insanity will be temporary until he's out of earshot, and so he doesn't want to do anything while temporarily insane that would then have permanent consequences. So he, he tells all of his sailors, all of his men, put wax in your ears so you can't hear the, the, the sirens call. And then he goes and he actually ties himself to the mast of the ship and he tells his men, keep on course no matter what I say. I actually think that's an, a, a great example Sometimes you simply have to go through the actions of loving your spouse because you will go through seasons where you go, ah, the butterflies just aren't there right now. And instead of doing something really foolish that will shipwreck your marriage, you tie yourself to the mast. And you say, I'm going to remind myself of the covenant. I'm not thinking straight. We have to get through this season. And then we can begin to, to keep working on it. So then, if marriage is a covenant, what is the purpose of our marriages? If you and I actually make our own personal fulfillment and our own happiness the purpose of our marriage, it will not last. If you go into a marriage and if your view of your spouse is that they are supposed to fulfill you and give you all joy and make you happy all the time, it won't last. Because personal fulfillment and happiness are actually meant to be byproducts of focusing on and pursuing the real biblical reasons for your marriage. You, you don't make those the focus. They come as you stay focused. So I'll give you three. There might be more. But one of the purposes of your marriage is your sanctification. One of the reasons that God uh, designed marriage is because it sanctifies us. It helps you become more and more like Jesus. Right? As, you, as you follow Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit does this work in you where he exposes sin. He chisels away parts of yourself. And then slowly you grow in the fruits of the Spirit and you grow in your likeness of Jesus. That's God's will for you. I mean, First Thessalonians 4 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Romans 6, 19 says, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So one of the reasons that God made it so a husband and wife are glued together, they're covenanted together, is because it sanctifies us. Even think of in Ephesians 5, uh, it says, it's, it brings up sanctification. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus, the groom, gives himself up for the bride, the church, you and I, so that he can actually sanctify us. So we can become holy and without blemish. Now, the reason that marriage is meant to sanctify us is because a marriage is the closest, most intimate human relationship that you can have. Your spouse will see the best parts of you and the worst parts of you. There's just not, there's no other relationship quite like it. Yes, you can be really close with your children. Yes, you can be really close with friends. But a, a marriage is the closest possible human relationship you can have. Um, there's, there's sometimes when I'm doing things at home and I'm trying to make my kids laugh and my wife will say things like, man, I'm glad that I'm the only person who gets to see this. She's like, this is ridiculous, right? And, and, and it's true. My spouse sees the, the best parts of who God's making me to be 
and yet my wife sees the absolute worst parts of me. Now that's why your spouse can grate on you. Because they're meant to. Right? When you're like, man, my spouse is really grating on me. The Holy Spirit's probably like, yeah, because you got a bunch of junk in your life that you got to work through. Right? And that's part of sanctification. Like, so listen, most of the times that I am annoyed at my spouse, and I told Molly, you're not in the service. I can talk all sorts about you. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Afterwards, everyone always goes to her. Did Andrew ask you permission to talk about you? And no, because then I wouldn't have permission to do it. Um, just kidding. But um, most of the times, right, when I am most annoyed with my spouse, if I actually take a minute and pause and think, it's because of my own selfishness. It's my own sinfulness rearing its ugly head. I'd say 98% of the time when I just go, man, you are really bothering me today and we're in an argument and a fight. If you actually step back and I've learned how to do this that I go, actually, this has nothing to do with you. This is my fault. It is my own selfishness rearing its head going, I want my way. So our goal as husbands and wives then if you think about sanctification, your goal, if you're married here, your goal is to help prepare your spouse to meet Jesus. I mean, that carries a lot of weight to it. I'm not saying that you're the Holy Spirit and that you sanctify them, but your goal as a spouse, like what did Paul say? Jesus, is the, the time is short. Jesus is coming back. My goal as a husband is to say, I want to do things that help Molly get ready to meet Jesus. So yeah, you know what? I'm exhausted, but I'll take the kids this morning so she can read her Bible, so that she can have time in prayer. I want to help my spouse get ready. Your spouse's sanctification and their holiness has to be one of the main purposes of your marriage. Secondly, marriage is meant to display the gospel. Marriage is a living narrative of Christ and the church. I mean, Ephesians 5, Paul quotes Genesis 2, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So the mystery of marriage is not just, oh, a man and a woman living together. That's so mysterious. Paul says the mystery of a, a, a man leaving his father and mother and holding fast to his wife is that it's actually about Jesus and the church. God created marriage to pattern the relationship that Jesus has with his bride to a broken and dying world. Even Paul in 2 Corinthians says this, for I feel a divine jealousy for you. He's talking about the church. Since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Right? It's about Jesus and the church. And actually, if you read the end, uh, history ends with a marriage feast. In Revelation 19, it's like Jesus comes back for his bride, and now it's time for the reception. It's time to eat and feast together. So a man's desire for his bride exists to show us that God in Christ desired a people for himself. At a wedding, oftentimes we're celebrating that this, this woman's affections were won by this man. And it's meant to, to show us that Christ actually wooed his people away from their idols and into his loving care. And if, even if you think about uh, in, in Genesis, a man leaves his father and mother and holds fast to his wife, you can ask, really, when did Jesus leave his father? And we go, oh, we just celebrated that. Jesus left his father and he came and he pursued his bride. So your marriage is meant to display that reality to the world. That people would look at your marriage and they would go, I don't understand why you as a husband and wife constantly are sacrificing for each other. I don't get it. And then it's meant for you to go, well, I, I can tell you why. Because Jesus has sacrificed so much for his bride. And then thirdly, as, as married couples, one of the purpose, purposes of your marriage is to be on mission together. To go and make disciples. To be less focused on yourself and more focused on the mission of God. And I would say serving together in ministry 
is probably one of the best things you can do for your marriage. Because you think being on mission for God can include discipling your kids, reaching your neighbors with the gospel, serving in the church, going on missions together. And I have found oftentimes when Molly and I actually serve together, I'm not thinking about how upset I am that she folds towels a different way or whatever. I just go, it doesn't matter. We are on mission for the kingdom together. I mean, oftentimes, um, not often, all the time when we do uh, weddings, Molly and I will do premarital counseling together. And like, it is such a boost for our marriage to serve together. Like when couples come over and we're able to share our failings, and here's what we've learned in 11 years of marriage, and here's what I've done really bad, and here's what she's done really bad, and here's what we've done really well. Afterwards, it's like, I feel so much closer to my wife when we've served together. And I hear her giving advice to couples, and I'm, I'm like, man, I'm in love with this woman. Look how well she serves the kingdom. And then I don't want to argue about really silly things. So then how do we do this, right? How do we keep this front and center? My sanctification, displaying the gospel, being on mission. I think we go right back to where we started in 1 Corinthians 7. Paul would say, listen, brothers and sisters, the time is short. Like, we don't have a lot of time. Like, now Jesus is more closer to coming than when you arrived at church. Like, you realize that. Like, tomorrow is one day closer to Jesus returning. Paul would say, time is short, church. Each second that goes by, you and I are closer to standing before our holy God. And when I have eternity in mind, I think it changes how I view my marriage. Suddenly, Molly forgetting to unload the dishwasher means nothing. Who cares? Jesus is coming back. And so the example of Jesus then, it actually, it grounds us because it can feel, I know it feels so overwhelming when you're like, okay, my marriage is a covenant, it's unbreakable, it's supposed to, I got to work on sanctification and displaying the gospel and being on mission. It can be so overwhelming, right? When you go, okay, we're off track, we got we to gotta get back, back on track. And some people might be overwhelmed and just go, well, I just can't do it if the feelings aren't there. Right? If you have bought into the culture's view of marriage and love, I could see that that would be your response where you go, I just can't keep doing this. I'm not feeling the butterflies. I'm not feeling the, the uh, apocalyptic romance. Really, I can't go through a season where I just kind of go through the motions and serve my spouse. Uh, Tim Keller wrote a great book on marriage years ago, and this is what he says. This means we must say to ourselves something like this. Well, when Jesus looked down from the cross, he didn't think, I'm giving myself to you because you are so attractive to me. No, he was in agony. And he looked down at us, denying him, abandoning him, and betraying him. And in the greatest act of love in history, he stayed. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He loved us not because we were lovely to him, but to make us lovely. That is why I'm going to love my spouse. Speak to your heart like that, and then fulfill the promises that you made on your wedding day. Now, I'm not saying that that's just going to magically fix everything, but I think when you go through seasons where you go, man, we're just, there's so much conflict, and I'm not necessarily having all of my desires and needs fed and fulfilled, and maybe even the romantic butterfly feelings aren't there for this season, we, we look to the cross, and we, we, we commit ourselves, I am going to fulfill the covenant that I made. I'm going to serve my spouse. And then trust that God's going to do his work. And like I said, in, in the, the weeks to come, we're going to talk more practically, like brass tacks. What do you do in conflict? But we have to start here. What is marriage? Why did God design it? And what is it for? So, Father, I just thank you that you have given an amazing gift to the human race, um, the gift of marriage. God, this was your design. This was your plan that a husband would leave his mom and dad and hold fast to his wife. 
Literally, two become one flesh, to be glued together to someone for the purposes of our becoming more like you, Jesus, for the purposes of displaying the grandeur of the gospel to a broken world, and for the purposes of being on mission together. And yes, Father, the, the, the fulfillment and the happiness and the joy are byproducts of us pursuing the real purposes of marriage. So God, I just pray for all of the couples in this room, and I know that just give it enough time, every marriage goes through some kind of rocky season of conflict, of differences of opinion, of something tragic that can just kind of shake a husband and a wife, or maybe not even that, maybe just years of slowly drifting apart. And so, God, we are asking that marriages in our church would be strengthened, that husbands would ask, how can I actually serve my wife? How can I sacrificially die to myself, put aside my wants and my needs and my desires, and how can I actually give my life for this woman? And God, for wives in, in this room, that they would ask, how can I love and respect my husband? How can I come alongside him and, and, and help him? How can I show honor to him and, and sacrifice for him? So God, help us to keep the purposes of marriage front and center in our minds and focus on them. Help us not to buy in to just the garbage of our culture. We're just fed this steady stream of nonsense in our culture. And then we wonder why our marriages are falling apart. So God, help us to turn off our culture's view of marriage and love and relationships and sex and all of those kinds of things. And I pray, God, that we would just focus on what your word says to us about marriage. And so help us in the next two weeks as well as we talk practically what are things that we can do, biblical principles that we can put in place to get through those hard seasons of marriage. So thank you, Father, and we just pray all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So that is the end of our service um, today. As always, if you need prayer, uh, I'll just kind of wait up front. I know some of our elders are here. Love to pray with you or just chat with you. Um, but I'm really hoping that you'll come back these next two weeks as we just keep diving into this topic. And so God bless you. Have a great week.